You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. The year is 1962. There's a man, a plan, and a camel. The movie? Lawrence of Arabia. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Sheeran. And this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time list. The 2007 edition to see if they really are as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch now? Uh, Last week, we spoke about Network with our great guest, Tatiana Maslany. This week, we are talking about about Lawrence of Arabia. But before we get into that, Amy, let's see what people thought about Network. This is one of the movies that I think a lot of people seeing it for the first time were like, oh, I get it. I have been seeing this movie referenced a gazillion times and oh my God, this movie feels so relevant today. I loved hearing that feedback from people just being like, boom, this movie hit me like an electric thunderbolt. I I can't believe that I saw something so relevant. You know, I wish I actually wrote down who said this, but I thought it was an interesting point. So forgive me for not name checking you. But the idea that we are constantly in this battle of talking down to the next generation, right? And the idea that the way that we talk about millennials is very similar to the way that the old school talked about Faye Dunaway. You know, they were raised on TV. They don't have any morals. And we are constantly looking behind us and criticizing the people there instead of elevating them up. And I just thought that was a really interesting point. And if you look at all the critiques leveled at Faye Dunaway, you can see a great similarity between all the critiques leveled against millennials right now. Yeah, I think Morgan Hale on Twitter is one of the people who made that point. And what I think is the extra delicious irony is that it's the people of the Faye Dunaway era who are saying that about mm-hmm. the millennials. They're the people who like, they they got it when they were kids and now they're just dishing it back, man. Um, also, uh, we were taken to task for 
kind of sympathizing with the Faye Dunaway character. Some people thought she was a straight up monster and deserved no sympathy. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that opinion. I, I don't know if she is uh, the nicest person, but I don't think she is a monster. I mean, we really did get into that, but I, I disagree with that idea that she is a villain to end all villains. I also had many people send me pictures of 70s clothes showing that, yes, women wore too much beige. To which <laughs> I'm like jealous of the cut of all of those pants because you, you know me. You see me all the time. I yeah. love a good high-waisted pant. But man, I, you can't get me in that beige to save my life. <laughs> now, Amy, um, we got an actually really interesting uh, write-up this week. Um, we were written up in Mr. Skin, which is the website that kind of helps uh, their readers uh, find the spots in films where people are uh, primarily naked. And someone was watching along with us on the AFI list and uh, and. Not only uh, kind of continue the conversation with us, but actually uh, skewered the conversation to when people were naked. And there was one shocking omission there, which was I don't think Bruce Willis's butt was uh, mentioned from Pulp Fiction. And that's uh, that is some genuine Mr. Skin territory. So, yeah, I thought that writer Stephanie Weber, I really appreciated that one of the scenes that she pointed out was the strip scene in Nashville mm. where the singer is forced to strip to get people to pay attention to her. And I thought she wrote about it not just from the perspective of, yeah, titties out. But, like, really getting to the emotion of the scene. So, well done, Mr. Skin. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Skin. And also, uh, thanks to the Washington Post for giving us a little bit of a shout-out and their article about the Shawshank Redemption. Um, Did you see the pictures from the slideshow of the Shawshank Redemption? Here's what happened. I can actually talk about this. This yes, is my please. old editor from the LA Weekly. Oh, okay, great. Zachary Pincus Roth, who I adore very much. Uh, then he moved to Washington and he became the art center of the Washington Post. He went to this giant Shawshank Redemption, like, fan anniversary. And that's what his article is about. But my God, the tattoos people have. I saw some The of those. sculptures made out of chocolate. I mean, I was losing my mind following his Instagram story about this. And then when he wrote about it, I was so happy. And I was glad that he, I would say that our Shawshank episode is still one of our most controversial. Yes. Why I would think that uh, we may be the public enemy number one of that fan fest. I mean, I don't We're think people- arrested. <laughs> um, but it was a great write-up. So well done, Zach. You know, Amy, I want to talk about this briefly, but um, the movie The Joker premiered at Venice, Todd Phelps movie. Uh, you know him as the director of movies like Old School. He also directed me in a film called School for Scoundrels with John Heater. Uh, he uh, and Joaquin Phoenix have kind of collaborated to make the first ever R-rated uh, Warner Brothers comic book movie uh, franchise potentially franchise picture, you know, as Joaquin Phoenix as a Joker. The initial response out of Venice was uh, really intense, right? It it got an eight-minute standing ovation, uh, and people are like, it's amazing, it's mesmerizing. People really took out their thesauruses for this review. And then there are a lot of people going, this is an incel story. This is a, you know, a story that is taking the the wrong message and putting it out there. And it was really interesting to kind of see the comparisons to the taxi driver and the Joker. Now, the taxi driver, when it comes out in Cannes, is booed. Uh, not re received well at all. We talked about that a little bit. But it, did you kind of follow any of that uh, online? A bit. You know, because I'm a critic, I try not to read anything that anybody says about mm -hmm. things. But you do get a sense of the vibe Around it, and I'm going to Toronto this week uh, for the Toronto Film Festival, and I'm hoping I get a chance to see the Joker. But I'll, I'm going to be reviewing movies for Variety, so God only knows if I'll get to. Right. But I mean, I really am interested because it seems like what we're talking about isn't even exactly a film problem, but an audience problem. 
And like, how do we interpret the movies? Like, where's the weight on the audience to decipher intention? Because I absolutely believe that some people do see a different movie in Taxi Driver than I think is intended. And yes. I also do think that the movie leaves it for open, you know, and I don't know how to feel about all of that. Well, I, you know, I feel very um, ill-equipped to talk about The Joker because I haven't seen it. I've only read people's reactions to it. And what I will say is people that were holding up Taxi Driver as, you know, this deft hand telling this very uh, carefully crafted story. I argue, I, I think that the moral center that people were saying that Taxi Driver had is not necessarily there. I do agree with you that it's in the eye of the beholder. You can look at it like, yes, Travis Bickle is a hero at the end of that movie because of the way the public sees him. We have seen his personal life. And I think, you know, again, movies are for interpretation, but it you can't compare the two and say that one is responsible for filmmaking and one is irresponsible because I think they both, well, again, I haven't seen The Joker, but I don't, I can clearly say Taxi Driver is not like, this is bad. He is, you know, he yeah. got, no, he didn't. Yeah, he, and I don't know. love lectures, but maybe, maybe that's a film that needs something. I don't know. But I want to talk about this movie when it comes out. I mean, maybe we yeah. should do like kind of a mini-sode on The Joker and Taxi Driver because I think I it'd be really interesting to, to get into this once we can really dig our fingernails into it. I love it. Um, all right, let's get into today's movie. It's a big one. Uh, I said to you last week, it felt like homework. People were really nervous that I said that. Uh, I did watch it on a small screen. I know people may have had a chance this week to go out and see it on a big screen. Um, but one question that was asked, a common question, I'll reference Paul Elliott, who asked, why is a British classic on the AFI list. Do you know why? I mean, this kind of gets into the Clockwork this Orange seems territory. This happen a lot. I don't yeah. know. If- Maybe where the money was, the financing. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if we don't claim things where the money was was there, but we don't like the film. We're like, ah, that's fine. <laughs> you can keep it. I don't know how that goes. I mean, because, yeah, yeah, I wonder wonder how many films are both on the AFI and the BFI, the British list. Well, if uh, we have an intrepid listener out there that wants to take on this task, please do. And then let us know and we will reveal the answer next week. Uh, Another thing that we brought up uh, was we said call the unspooled voicemail line at 747-666-5824. And if you've not seen Lawrence of Arabia, tell us what you think it is about. And uh, here's what we got. I assume Lawrence of Arabia is about the British invasion of America by the Beatles. So my knowledge of history is limited to Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. Lawrence of Arabia, it's about Johnny Lawrence's sequel to The Karate Kid. It's about him going to Arabia and teaching karate. Lawrence of Arabia, as a child, I believed that it was the cousin of George of the Jungle. So I I assume it's four hours of Lawrence of Arabia finally meeting his cousin George of the Jungle. The classic uh, fish-out-of-water tale of a young Indianan boy who ends up in the middle of Arabia where he tirelessly works on his jump shot and uh, starts going by Larry Bird. Lawrence of Arabia is a prequel to Ishtar, right? You know what? Uh, that person was right about the Ishtar thing. I'm pretty sure this is a prequel to Ishtar. Are you, what do you think? I think I'm now I'm going to have We Didn't Start the Fire stuck in my head all day. Like, <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia, British Beatlemania. Um, all right, Amy, let's get Lawrence of Arabia into our heads with our feature presentation. The year is 1962. A gallon of gas costs 28 cents. John Glenn becomes the first American to orbit the Earth. The Cuban Missile Crisis begins. Maryland sings happy birthday to Mr. President. Walmart, Kmart, and Target all open their first stores. Theatergoers are watching To Kill a Mockingbird, The Music Man, 
and today's film, Lawrence of Arabia. It clocks in at number seven on the AFI Top 100 list in 2007, down two points from its number five spot in the previous list. Amy, Lawrence of Arabia, who's in it? What's it about? List every character, please. Good God. Well, it's a bunch of men. Uh, Let's see. Lawrence of Arabia. It is directed by David Lean, the name associated with gigantic, gigantic, gigantic epics of this period. It is written by Robert Bolt with an assist from Michael Wilson. He did the first couple drafts. This movie just – I'm going to start even just by naming some of the technicals because it's a big-ass technical list. This is the movie that really – Showcase the work of Anne V. Coates. She was a young editor coming up in the world. She's incredible. Maurice Jarre's score is, of course, famous. And now let's get on to the people who are actually in the movie. So Lawrence of Arabia, it is a fictionalized version of the story of T.E. Lawrence. A real man went to Cairo during World War I, was a bit of a buff of the, of the region, and then convinced them to let him start to a revolution of sorts, trying to gather up as many local Bedouin fighters as he could to fight the Turks. The Turks, of course... I mean, this is a complicated World War history. But the Turks, of course, were allied against British interests. They were more aligned with Germany. Uh, We can get into all of that if we want, but this will be as long as anything. Uh, So the British had an interest in helping Peter O'Toole, as T.E. Lawrence, help the Arabs fight the Turks. Everybody else in this movie, you've got Alec Guinness as Prince Faisal, a real person. Anthony Quinn also is a real person. Auda Abutai. You have Omar Sharif. Breakout Egyptian star here playing a fictionalized person named Sharif Ali. Then you've got a bunch of Brits. You've got Jack Hawkins as General Allenby. You've got Anthony Quayne as Colonel Brighton. You've got Claude Rains, who we're going to see again in the future. You basically got everybody and a bunch of camels. Yeah, Amy, this movie is massive. It's so massive. It's not even in Panavision. It's in Super Panavision. Super Panavision. So big. Um, I actually felt bad watching it at home. It it reminded me in a way of like 2001. It It is a theater film that I think must be an amazing experience to watch in a crowded room with a bunch of people. And you have that opportunity right now because Fathom Events, which we are not affiliated with, is actually uh, playing Lawrence of Arabia uh, the first couple of days of September. So hopefully you get out and see it. I think that's the way to see this movie. Um, I it think- is. That's the way I first saw the movie. They had it um, big here a few a few years ago, yeah. the Egyptian. And I have to say, it was awesome. Like, it was totally sold out. And the Egyptian's huge. If anybody's been to the Egyptian theater here in L.A., it's an old classic movie palace. We were in the back row of the balcony because that's how oh, crowded wow. it was. That was the best seat we could get. And it was awesome to see just huge and as kind of a social experience where during intermission, we wandered, got some popcorn, got some coffee, stretched ran into a bunch of people we knew. It was awesome. I love an intermission. I know we've talked about this, uh, but I love, you know, a movie that is so grand. And we've talked about a handful of them, Ben-Hur, Gone with the Wind, 2001. And they all kind of share this DNA where you are really thrown into a world where the rules of normal film don't really apply, right? Like the pacing is incredibly different. Uh, You can really exist into scenes. And I would argue out of all the films I just mentioned, this film probably has the least amount of plot. I mean, 2001 doesn't have a tremendous amount of plot either, but it's interesting. Like what's happening here is very simple. If you were to break down the story, you could, you could do it pretty easily. Um, with all the specifics, you can get lost in the minutia. But it, it, it's a it's a pretty one, two, three, four kind of uh, a film. Um, but you are just kind of 
literally thrown into the world. I imagine when you're in a theater, you feel like I am there. And and what must it have felt like to be in a theater at that point when you're not even getting exposed to those kinds of landscapes? I mean, I love that you paired this with Ben-Hur, a movie that came before it, Mm -hmm. and 2001, a movie that came after because this really is the movie that lets both exist. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, we're so used to now is using Lawrence of Arabia as like this shorthand for gigantic epic that, oh my God, I don't know if I have time for. Or, Absolutely. well, it's no Lawrence of Arabia to like put a right. movie down. It's, it's used as an adjective on its own. And I think what's hard to really appreciate about what this movie was in 1962 is it was modern. You know, I think we think of it as a little bit old-fashioned now because it is a period piece even for its day, but it was a period piece from a time not that long ago, relatively speaking, Mm -hmm. because we had giant epics like Ben-Hur, but the giant epics of the day were like biblical stuff, ancient things, real history, sword and sandals, and this was people who made this movie were still alive and could be mad at it. You know, the relatives of King Faisal were still controlling parts of Syria and Iraq. I mean, this movie really is this pivotal transition moment where it opens the door for the epics of the future, like 2001. Yeah, and you can see that going all the way through to a film like Dunkirk. You know, it, it you really can kind of exist in these, you know, smaller stories in a much more epic landscape. Obviously, we're just focusing on this man's journey through the, the war. I'd also argue that in 1962, you're probably more familiar with some of the details of World War One. And that's a that's a kind of a a blind spot for me. I like history, but it's it's one of the wars that I don't really know that much about. So I wonder also if it puts me a little bit um, far away from the material because it's kind of acclimating myself to what's going on because they don't really lead you into it that much. I mean, they're keeping you a little bit, uh, they're handholding you to a certain extent, but. You know, I think if you understood the kind of machinations of what's going on, you might even find yourself more immersed in it. Yeah, exactly. Because I think you're right. We definitely have a World War II bias in film over a World oh, yeah. War One bias in film, especially when it comes to the films of like our generation that we've grown up with. And when we do get a World War One film, it's usually films from Europe. You know, the the whole fighting in the desert. We don't really talk about that very much at all. Like, right. there's not that many movies. And so, if people are watching this, and they're really confused. Maybe I should just give like a 30-second history yeah. of what was going on up until this point. Absolutely. So in Lawrence of Arabia, the Turks or the Ottoman Empire, they're the bad guys, as as we're sort of seeing it through this lens. And what's happening here is that at this moment in time, like during World War I, the Ottoman Empire had been this gigantic empire that controlled parts all the way up into Hungary for 600 years. They were massive. Gigantic empire. And in 1919, in the lead up to 1990, in the lead up to this war area, they were worried about losing their clout. They were worried about this burgeoning World War One that everybody kind of saw coming. They asked if they could make alliances, maybe, be friendly with the British, with the French, with the Russians, and they all said no. So then what happens is then they attack Russian ports in the Black Sea. And when they do that, when they make enemies with Russia, then they become sort of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and they right. align themselves with Germany. And so we were fighting Germany, and therefore then we had to fight the Turks, or then the Turks were our enemies. That's sort of the domino chain of how all of this played out. And what we're seeing here in Lawrence of Arabia is the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire that had ruled this part of the world for so long. The sultans, the Suleiman family, these beautiful palaces that when you go to Turkey, you can still see. And then the Ottoman Empire becoming these countries that we know today as like Iraq, Syria, Palestine, Jordan, countries that we think of as fractious because of actually the way the British that we see in Lawrence of Arabia divided up this giant territory 
deliberately pairing tribes together that they knew didn't get along because they thought if they made a nation state of people who didn't get along, then they would always be fighting with each other and the wow. British could control them. So yeah. all of the problems we have today are actually because of this movie, honestly. Wow. Not because of this movie, but because of like the story that this movie is telling about this country. And I will say it's been, it was really interesting to, for me to watch this film because before I watched it the first time, I hadn't been to Istanbul or like right. seen the the military museum, which is all very triumphant from the sultan's the sultan's point of view. I hadn't been to Jordan, and I've now been to Jordan. I've been to Cairo since I since I saw this movie before and after, and it's fascinating to see it kind of come to life and to see different parts of the story get illuminated. Now this movie makes a lot more sense to me because it's confusing. It's definitely confusing. Yeah, and I think that that sense of overwhelming scope in the war and the factions can kind of be a daunting way in. So I know that I kind of took a back seat and just enjoyed it much more from a character perspective and really was watching, you know, Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif and seeing it more as like a buddy action movie to a certain degree. I mean, it is about these two men. They are essentially an odd couple that are going through uh, you know, going through insurmountable odds and kind of, you know, creating their own, you know, army that r- plays by their own rules. It, it's a very, like, very traditional story housed in a historical context, which I think is a really smart way to approach this material because I could see the other version of it, which would be a lot more sleep-inducing. Yeah, and what you're describing is actually the evolution of this movie itself because the first couple drafts of the script, you know, I mentioned that there are two writers – uh, the first writer, Michael Wilson, he wrote the political version. He wrote the let's lay out all of the politics, let's right. make it really clear. And David Lean was like, you know what, we really can't do this. It's too complicated. It's just, oh, it's, we can't. We can't handle it. We have to make this character-driven. And that is when Robert Bolt came in and made it more of this character-driven film. And his strategy was like, I mean, listen, the politics in this area, if you really get into them, even for us today, especially looking back with all the history – it's irreconcilable. You know, it's contradictory. It's complicated. There are no heroes. There are no villains. It's it's so complex. So his way in really was just by drilling into the character of T.E. Lawrence, a man who I think himself contained all of the complexity and was as difficult to figure out and to pin down, a man who saw himself as not quite a hero at the end of his life, but a villain, that by kind of embracing all of that mess, that's what this movie is, and that's the best way through it. Well, I think that when the film opens, it does such a great job of establishing this character. The opening scene, Peter O'Toole, a little bit older, on this motorcycle. It's such an amazing shot. They have this, um, you know, this giant camera on a motorcycle racing down the road. These shots are jarring, and they I can only imagine the scope of them in a theater. Isn't but it, it so much more modern feeling than you were expecting to oh, see when you sat down to see yes. Lawrence of Arabia? Well, that's the whole thing, that, that opening sequence is like, well, do I not know what this movie is about. And you're kind of thrust into this action scene where you you don't know what to make of it. He He's going dies. So fast. Oh, and and the and the camera feels it. Like you feel like you're in danger. And again, talking about being in a theater, that is probably, you know, equivalent to what, like seeing Star Tours or something. Because you are in that POV of, you know, a very shaky camera. And you're not used to such um a widescreen film being so recklessly uh, handheld. You know, you're brought into this death scene and you're like, oh my God, he's dead. All right, what, what is this film? And then you slowly start to see 
that no one really knows who this character is. And we only know a little bit about him, which is he's reckless. And but we also know he's a hero. And we also know that people have made judgments about him, but don't even know him. So you start in the very first, you know, five minutes of the movie, painting this beautiful picture of a very complicated man. You were talking a little bit about his funeral scene. I want to play a bit of that. You know, you have this reporter going around trying to Mm -hmm. interview people, trying to get a story of it. I was listening to this and I was like, oh my God, they took Citizen Kane structure. Lord Allenby, could you give me a few words about Colonel Lawrence? What, more words? The revolt in the desert played a decisive part in the Middle Eastern campaign. Yes, sir, but about Colonel Lawrence himself. No, no, I didn't know him well, you know. Uh, Mr. Bentley, you must know as much about Colonel Lawrence as anybody does. Yes, it was my privilege to know him and to make him known to the world. He was a poet, a scholar, and a mighty warrior. Thank you. He was also the most shameless exhibitionist since Barnum and Bailey. You, sir, who are you? My name is Jackson Bentley. Ah. Well, whoever you are, I overheard your last remark, and I take the gravest possible exception. He was a very great man. Did you know him? No, sir, I can't claim to have known him. I once had the honor to shake his hand in Damascus. Knew him? No, I never knew him. He had some minor function on my staff in Cairo. What's so interesting about this is we're watching a newspaper reporter talk to people at a funeral, and one of the people he actually interviews is a newspaper reporter who plays a pivotal part in the film. And I think one of the comments that they're making is how, you know, we create our own history. Like, that newspaper reporter was very influential in creating the idea of Lawrence. Um, And then you have other people who don't even know this person creating another version of him. So, you know, what is true? And that's something I think we struggle with all the time. Like, what is our history? And it's not even like history is told through the side of the winners. It's history is told through, I think, our perceptions and our wants. We want him to be this person. So there's a part of me that thinks of this movie, is this Lawrence or is this how we want to remember him? Because he's definitely shot and presented in a way, you know, he sometimes has dirt on his face, but he's always shaving. He always looks amazing. And I think that is a conscious choice. Like we are putting him on a pedestal. I mean, and when he is beaten, he still looks good. And I don't know if that's an effect of how the film is kind of talking about how we talk about history, or if it is just uh, more about the time and how you had made movies and your action stars or your movie stars have to always look amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it really is about how we frame the people that we call heroes. You know, because I think this is actually a problem we have really ongoing today in movies all the time, where we want to think that the people that we elevate into the people worth telling stories about are heroes, Mm. that they're good guys. And that, like, this person did something important, so therefore what they did maybe is good. Or if we're telling their story, we want everything that they did to vindicate what we think is good. Mm -hmm. Like, there's some sort of moral lesson into it. And I think this whole film is about that idea. Like, a person can do something big. And that person does not have to be a hero. And that person might not call themselves a hero. Or that person might call themselves a hero and then be crazy for it and then realize they're not a hero. Or that person might have been made a hero by the people around him, like the newspaper reporter we see, who was actually based on a real dude. He was based on this dude named Lowell Thomas. 
And what Lowell did is he took all this footage of, of the real T.E. Lawrence. And in 1919, he started screening it around in theaters. He called it The Last Crusade. Oh, wow. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Um, and it was this special event and it was hugely popular. And Lawrence himself was really uncomfortable with it because he already felt broken by his experience in the East. And he said that he, quote, was made into a matinee idol. And he would walk around and he would get mobbed and people would ask wow. him for like to marry him. And he hated who he became. And this fame made him really uncomfortable. And that's the man that we see, this fictionalized version of the man who made him famous, kind of to his own emotional, psychic detriment. Well, the movie does a great job of showing him incredibly heroic and then incredibly conflicted. You know, he is someone who at certain points in the film is is one of the most affected people by violence, you know, um, and yet he uses violence to achieve his ends. It's a fascinating character. And I was thinking about how, you know, Peter O'Toole approached this character because he has to kind of play it on so many different levels. And I found this clip from 1962. Uh, it's a little bit long, but I think it's worthwhile because it's Peter O'Toole talking about how he saw Lawrence. So take a listen. He said this remarkable thing, which I'd never understood before, which was that Lawrence reminded him of a middleweight boxer. And at that moment, something very important clicked. I knew exactly what Abdi meant by the plane of his face. The eyes didn't travel over the, the clothes, but they were aware of the hands and aware of everything that was going on. And it was at once withdrawn, as a boxer must be, and at the same time very penetrating. And this one physical thing really clicked, and it made a whole difference to the way I played him. I thought that was such a great way of looking at this character because he is constantly pulling people in and he is convincing people. He's manipulating the ring. Like a good boxer is moving you to where they want you to be and playing you. And 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 I thought that that uh, was so fascinating to kind of hear how he approached that. And that was obviously uh, given to him by someone who actually knew Lawrence. Yeah. And I mean, David Lean, when he said, when he was looking at this character, he basically said Lawrence was a nut. He said he was a wonderful kind of nut, but then he mm -hmm. knew he was putting on screen a guy who was a nut, a magnetic, powerful, powerful nut. And, you know, before we jump to the desert, I even just want to take a second and play a clip of his own newsreel footage, like the citizen, oh, the wow. literal Citizen Kane footage of what happened in 1935 when T.E. Lawrence died. Lawrence of Arabia, national hero, passes. The soldier philosopher who rallied the Arabs to our cause in the war and built up a kingdom for the Emir Faisal in Iraq. Caring nothing for the ordinary sway of life, with his work in the desert accomplished, he joins the Air Force as an air craftsman, changing his name to shore and forsaking his high rank. Then, Colonel Lawrence, shunning public attention, retires to this tiny cottage at Clouds Hill, Dorset, buried by forests. Suddenly, this man who faced death a score of times in Arabia meets a tragic end on a peaceful English country road. I mean, I think that if the driving question of Citizen Kane is, who is Charles Foster Kane? I think the defining driving question of Lawrence of Arabia is both who is he and how implicit are we in defining who he is? You know, I think that there's more of 
a pressure on who are we that are telling his story? Who do we want to think that he is? Like the guy who shows up and sounds very Monty Python-esque at the end yeah. of that clip. He's like, oh, good day, sir. I knew him. And you actually do see that character show up, shake his hand at the lowest point of Lawrence's life when he is miserable. Yeah. Shake his hand and be like, oh, hello. And I'm pretty sure in that scene when you hear it, Lawrence says, like, haven't we met before? And the guy's like, no, 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 right. no, no. I'm not totally sure. I'm not, I would love somebody to check this. But there is that scene when Lawrence is finally in Cairo for the first time and he goes up to a pool table and he grabs a ball and ruins the yeah. setup that people were playing with. I'm pretty sure the man who shoots him a dirty look is that same guy who just doesn't put it together because oh, that wow. was some punk. It wasn't a guy in robes. It wasn't a guy who looked like a movie star. It wasn't this figure. He was just some dude. You know, One of the first moments that we see of young Lawrence is also a really defining moment of him as well, which is... Going back to the idea of like he's a little bit crazy, like where he puts out the the match with his fingers and like, well, how did you do that? You know, and he's like, there is no trick. It's just you have to not mind it. And that to me seems to be like the crux of the character. You know, so when he does get, you know, caned or whipped. Or. Well, this is what I was going to ask you. Was he raped? Yeah, the answer seems to be yes. Okay. I mean, what we're jumping ahead to for the arc of the film, I'm maybe, maybe I'll just say it in like three beats. Yeah. Lawrence goes to Arabia. Lawrence leads successful missions. Lawrence is overconfident, captured by the Turkish. Question mark, question mark happens. Then Lawrence is broken. And then when he goes back to fight, he does not like the way he's fighting. He's incredibly violent. Right. And then he is disillusioned and then retires to England and right. dies. These are sort of the main arc beats. One thing that's really interesting is this Turkish moment. So Lawrence goes to this town called Dara, and his his army won't go with him, the few soldiers mm -hmm. that he has left. So he's like, I can go by myself. I'm invisible. Because right. at this point, he's completely he delusional in his own power. He thinks he's a god, yeah. He thinks he's a god. He immediately, like, not even, like, a question about it, not even a cat and mouse, mm -mm. immediately gets captured by the Turks. And you have this Turkish man called the Turkish Bey, who's played by the actor Jose Ferrer. And there's a scene where you see him bent over, facing us. His face is right up in the camera. Mm -hmm. His back is now towards... The Turkish Bey, who's very much in the distance, you suddenly see that the Turkish Bey has unbuttoned his shirt a bit. Yes, it's a very much like he's I, like sizing him up like he's a piece of meat. He's like you're beautiful and 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 your skin. And, he's been yeah, touching his skin. Yeah. And in Lawrence's own diaries, he ripped out those pages. And then mm. in his memoir that he wrote, he said that the Turkish Bey had raped him. And right. so there is an, an idea that this film and everything that happens next is basically a rape-revenge film, that he's broken and traumatized. And when he overkills, it is in kind of the rape-revenge genre trope. And then people have kind of gone back and forth and well, said it did happen, it didn't happen. He, yeah, like he couldn't have been there. There's like some like historians have kind of said, no, he was never there. But I'm glad that you brought that up because – it was more his reaction is more than just a caning. Like he, you know, he is he is literally a shell of of who he was. Yeah, in in the lean in the lean reading of this film, like too lean. Mm -hmm. And this movie is very fictionalized. Yeah. Too lean, he is raped in that scene. And he said if he regretted one thing about yeah. it, it's that 90% of the people miss that Lawrence of Arabia well, is raped. it's odd because they show his rapist down the hallway looking through a door. And I think they could have done that scene. You know, look, I'm going to give David Lean some notes. Uh, you know, I think – <laughs> but, you know, again, we're probably doing the standards and practices. Like, But it – I think they did everything in their power to – not even allude to it. It's not even, it's not alluded to. I think now we see a sensibility of that's the reaction 
must be that's what happened. It's very um, unambiguous how it's presented on screen, I think. Yeah, and to kind of add to the complexity of how to even read the scene or whether or not it's true, I mean, we do have letters that Lawrence wrote to his friends. Mm -hmm. And in one of his letters, he wrote that he would pay a man to beat him. And that he kind of enjoyed it. He had a little bit of like an S&M tinge. There's sort of some illusions that maybe he was gay. It's like it's all very vague. Like he was at least a person who wasn't really that interested in the company of women. But that he would pay people to beat him as Beethoven played on a gramophone. And so some people are arguing that when he wrote this in his memoir that this happened to him, it was his fantasy. But Mm. the I guess – if if we're talking about truth and legend, I guess like we can talk about the legend of that. But then the truth – According to this movie. And the well, truth according to this movie is he's definitely raped. And I think the idea that we have to take away, and the only thing that we can really take away firmly, 100%, that there's no denial over, is there was a period of time in which he lost his bravado. He lost his verve or vim, like whatever it is. And I think there's something really interesting. Did you pick this up at all? When they go to the attack, when they when they do this kind of devastating attack of, you know, take no prisoners after, you know, uh, Lawrence comes back into the fold and he's a, essentially getting his mojo back. After begging to not have to get his mojo back. Yeah. He's like, don't send me back in. Bad stuff will happen. And, and they're like, yeah, you're a hero. And he's a shell of a man. He's out there. He's surrounded by these guards who are more in it for money than they are for the actual, you know, uh, you know, the pride of yeah, the land. Straight up mercenaries. He's surrounded right. by straight up mercenaries. And when he goes in and he sees this man killed by the Turks and he's like, no prisoners, they immediately cut to two bells underneath a wagon or a horse. And I couldn't help but see them as balls or testicles and it was like because it is this moment of he says let's kill them and we see those balls hanging down i'm like oh he's got his balls back like this is a very interesting moment can i show you that scene and tell me what you think all right wagon nuts i mean yeah they're like they're like truck nuts on that i mean do you see like there's giant big hanging nuts on the the bottom of that horse carriage you're making me think of jimmy stewart (laughs) (laughs) i heard he had small nuts but big dick uh so uh but um i mean i think that's all interesting especially given that this is the movie that made o'toole a star i mean the way that he even described stardom was that it was something insidious, you know, mm. that it, like, it creeps through your toes and that you don't realize what's happening until it reaches your nut. Is <laughs> actually said the word ah, nut. There you go. Ah, there a you lot go. of nuts. And that's when it becomes dangerous. And it sounds like he's really deliberately drawing this line between stardom of being an actor and stardom of being Lawrence of Arabia, stardom of being this military hero. Yeah. And so I think it is so fascinating to have this movie that just really puts stardom under the lens. I mean, maybe we should jump all the way back. Like we talked about the match scene. I mean, mm-hmm. what happens in this movie is, you know, we have the funeral, then we cut to Cairo. We cut to him being bored in Cairo. You cut to him just sort of being trapped in these gray areas. You know, the opening of this movie is so gray, gray London, mm-hmm. kind of bucolic looking, but white picket fence, strange mm-hmm. England. Then he's indoors in Cairo. You see these two camels walk by out the window and you see him just be like, I want that. Yeah. You know, I want to get out there. And that's when he does his first round of the match trick. And then he gets dragged into the British officer's office and they're like kind of seeing around if he can be useful. And this is kind of how the British officers sum him up. Good morning, sir. Salute. 
If you're insubordinate with me, Lawrence, I shall put you under arrest. It's my manner, sir. Come on. My manner, sir. It looks insubordinate, but it isn't really. Well, I can't make out whether you're bloody bad mannered or just half-witted. I have the same problem, sir. Shut up. Yes, sir. I mean, he can't make out who Lawrence is, and that really is the question for Lawrence himself, this whole right. journey. I mean, I think that Lawrence of Arabia is in part this journey of Lawrence of Arabia, of Lawrence of Arabia to become Lawrence of Arabia, to have some sort of a name, because one of the backdrops here that's really important is that T.E. Lawrence himself didn't really have a family name. His dad was married and had a bunch of daughters, and then his dad had an affair with one of the women who worked in the house, one of the maids. And then ran off with the maid and had five boys. And Lawrence was the second son. So in British terms, he was a bastard. Mm -hmm. And in the British Victorian Empire, which he was born into, being a bastard was just the lowest form you could be. He couldn't he couldn't really aspire to marry a woman of good breeding. Mm -hmm. He was shunted out into the darkness of British society. And so that's what I think you see in this thrilling of his character is a man who's really searching – to have a name of his own because he never had a proper last name. He never had a proper father. He never had a sense of identity. He grew up feeling really rootless. Like there was no sense of him at all being able to fit into where he was from. So maybe if he goes across the world, maybe if he makes new friends and gets away from anybody who might know about his backstory, he can create something new for himself. And you really hear that in this conversation he has with Omar Sharif when they're becoming friends. Your father to just Mr. Lawrence. My father is Sir Thomas Chapman. Is that a lord? A kind of lord. Then when he dies, you too will be a lord. No. Ah. You have an elder brother. No. But then, I do not understand this. Your father's name is Chapman. Ali. He didn't marry my mother. I see. I'm sorry. It seems to me that you are free to choose your own name, then. Yes. I suppose I am. Lawrence is best. All right. I'll settle for Lawrence. I love that, and to know that he actually changes his name to Shaw in, in real life uh, because of the the notoriety that the name brings you know it's like this is a man who cannot find a name because yeah. wherever he has a name there's a negative connotation to it or or a connotation he does not want to be associated with and that's i mean that's a fascinating story and it's you're right when he died they didn't even know it was him they're like oh it's some guy named shaw wow and i think what elevates this film because i don't know how much i love this film as much as i appreciate this film there are fantastic lines there are incredible visuals the music is amazing the editing is perfection but this performance without this kind of very nuanced performance i don't think there's that much there there you know it, it like uh you know because you really need him to do so much because a lot of it is just all i mean it's we're alone in the desert there's like what is it there's no like there's like one or two women that speak in the entire film at, at i don't a. even know if there's that i mean uh you there's know there's like there's some women who cry out you know sort of a good luck cheer 
Yeah. Uh, when when Anthony Cohen's men leave to go fight, there's they almost had they actually had to write out a woman's role in order to get wow. in order to have the movie be this non-female because Lawrence, one of his really closest friends when he was in Cairo, was actually a female historian and the female historian Gertrude Bell is the one who briefed him on what all the tribes how they all broke down around Akba and she's the one who told them how to befriend them. So when he shows up and he's able to figure out the way to work in Anthony Quinn as as uh, Abu and to work into his sub- subconscious and get him on his side, that is all coming actually from this woman, Gertrude Bell, who just isn't really written into this movie as an advisor. Oh, wow. Say, Levy. But I don't mind in no. a weird way. I'm not mad at it for it. I'm just pointing no, it out. I, I agree with you. I mean, you're telling a story where you can't just shoehorn in these characters. I, I just don't think it makes that much sense. But what do you think about my kind of wrestling with this as a film. I, I think it's something that needs to be seen. I'm glad that I saw it. Going back to your point earlier, it felt a little bit more like homework than the other ones. Like I even listened to this clip of what Martin Scorsese had to say about it, which made, and he loves it, but what he said about the movie, and I think this is a very telling point. Uh, it's an odd film because it never seemed to be finished, the film. I can't tell you what the ending is. It seems to go on and on. Uh, he's, in a, he's in a Jeep and he sees some of the camels go by. And he sort of wishes he was there, I guess, and that's the end. So in a funny way, whenever that film is always open to be viewed again and again, because there are so many scenes, it's kind of a, it's kind of structureless in a way. And maybe that some people would say that that's a, a negative aspect of it. I don't know. Maybe that's a fault. I don't know. Maybe it's proven that way because when uh, the restoration was finally made, David Lean was still putting in more scenes. <laughs> He's claimed he had never really finished editing the film, you know, which is, believe me, that could happen. <laughs> I mean, he did have, I think, 33 miles of raw footage, wow. 33 miles of dailies wow. that he could have made from this film. I mean, it's strange. I, I've been thinking a lot about this kind of around the topic, and then we have this film to talk about, which is exactly what I've been chewing on. I think one of my sensitive spots that I just really love is a film that calls out hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm really kind of fascinated by the nature of hypocrisy. And this film being so much about our hypocrisy towards who we consider heroes, our hypocrisy about what's good and bad, even Lawrence of Arabia's own hypocrisy about himself and how well he fits in, and then him being able to see clearly who he really is at the end of his life and to try to recant, repent, and hide. I'm just a sucker for stories about that for the most part. Because, you know, yeah, this is a film that's so male, and I would think, like, given the movies I like and don't like, given that I don't really care that much about Apocalypse Now, I should be irritated about this, but I'm not. Because I think... There's something in Apocalypse Now that is still like fist bumping. Mm-hmm. And this movie is like, don't fist bump. It's almost like mad at the people who would fist bump. And well, I, maybe that's part of what draws me to it. It's again, we've talked about this a little bit here. I don't mind a character study. Like it's sometimes the character is greater than the story of the film. If that makes sense. Like I agree. Like the hypocrisy of we're, we're really looking at this character's life and how we're viewing this life and the complicated relationship that he had with the way he fought his, the war, what he wanted, how he wanted to be perceived. And I think that this movie is a very dramatic film because it's so small in the character in a world that's so giant. It's like it's like that figure that uh, Lawrence sees in the canyon when he's singing the song. He sees this man. He's so tiny amongst these rocks. When you first see him, it's like – and that's – what I think this whole movie, the whole movie could be summed up. It's like this little man in this vast desert where everything is against him. And who are you under those circumstances? And we see him in this highs and lows and ego filled and and completely depleted. And and we see him 
at the moment that he dies. Did he? He did die like that, though. He died. Yeah, he did. His- he absolutely died with the two kids on the bikes and dodging around them. I mean, that news relay flight, if we had kept playing it, they're like, and here's the dented bike. They actually wow. show the dented bike. Like the image that you're talking about, you know, one of the things I think the camera does so well here is it forces you, the audience, to become more active in your watching. You know, mm-hmm. you learn the way that the film, the people in the film do to scan the horizon. You know, when it starts, you have his guide who's able to see the people coming from far away mm-hmm. way before Lawrence himself is. And then you watch the, Lawrence himself learn how to do that. You watch the, the kids that he adopts as his helpers learn how to do that. And the audience, we ultimately get really good at that. Like, here's a giant vista. Where is the man inside of there? I mean, I think the thing that sums up the arc maybe most simply and most beautifully is he's given these robes and he puts on these robes. And these robes, by the way, do this amazing thing over the course of the film. They deteriorate from this like really crisp cotton white and they get swapped out for increasingly kind of vaporous, dirty, thin robes. So by the end, he's wearing this robe that almost looks ghostly, wraith-like, really transparent, ring-wraithy, maybe, Mm, you might say. But he puts on the robe for the first time and he's play acting. I love, love this scene. He's play acting, right? And he's like goofing around like a little kid and he takes out the knife and he checks his reflection in the knife. And when you see him take out the knife again and check his reflection in it is right after that massacre Mm. that he launches. And he holds up his knife one more time and it's covered in blood. And I think that right there is the arc of this movie, a fantasy play acting thing to the real dirt and grime. I love that. That's a really beautiful... uh, way of of saying it i would also say maybe you could track him as a child into an adult like you know i mean i agree with what you just said but like he was gifted this like his adoptive father if you will like gave him these robes you are now part of our clan and and you know and and it's lovely to be a part of it but then he was had to carry the weight of that robe and you know he had to carry the the weight of being a part of this community and that is is a heavier burden you know, here's a, a man also who is watching some of his close friends be killed. And, you know, the allegiance that he has to him and then, you know, he befriends the next guy or, you know, he has to kill the man that he goes to save. That's a very complicated thing, like that he shoots this man that he risked his life to rescue. I mean, that's the most damning thing. I don't even know how to take that in. That's a, That just paints the character in a way that, you know, uh, a thousand words could not, that one moment there. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about the first time that he sees death, because we're sort of talking about the drive up to that, Yeah, where you have that famous, 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 famous shot of Omar Sharif riding up on the camel. You can't tell what it is. They're using this lens that's over 400. Yeah, 482 millimeter lens. Which is wild. I mean, usually they're under 100, just yes. for kind of perspective. This is like, da-da, and, and it flattens everything. You get It's the never been imagery. used ever since, and I can't <laughs> believe that that's a true Fact, the fact that Christopher Nolan has not used this lens just for the hell of it. Yeah, is... I'm surprised he hasn't used that exact same lens. Yeah, like, I, mean, I will come on. use that exact same lens. But you have Omar Sharif riding up out of the desert and then straight away murdering his guy, the guy that we've been kind of growing to like mm-hmm. as he's been showing Lawrence around and has Lawrence has been training himself to be a man who doesn't need water. And his reaction to that death, Lawrence's reaction is incredibly what we would want him to be, in a way. You know, westernized, mm-hmm. judgmental. I mean, here's how he talks about it to Sharif himself. My name is for my friends. None of my friends is a murderer. You are angry, English. He was nothing. The well is everything. 
Hazimi may not drink at our wells. He knew that. Salam. Hut, hut, hut. Sheriff Ali, so long as the Arabs fight tribe against tribe, so long will they be a little people, a silly people, greedy, barbarous, and cruel, as you are. I mean, that speech he's given, what he's saying there, he basically is saying the British point of view. Yes. I look down on you people. You people are not mm-hmm. civilized like us. And so I really appreciate that this movie you know, takes that point of view, which is still, I think, modern. I still think there are people today, Americans, you know, people of people in power around the world who talk this way about the Middle East, like talk down to it. But yet and he's fighting for a, a country that is is also as barbaric, but they view themselves as more in the right. You know, they're bombing that small town with planes and never, you know, it's, it's, it's they're they're just as ferocious, you know? Exactly. And that's what I appreciate so much about this movie is it is not a white savior movie, which I think people have kind of like dismissed it as maybe when they haven't really thought about it. You can't, much, you but. can't be a white savior movie when it's a true story, right? I mean, I look, this is the specifics of things might be congealed and put together, but this is a man who did these things. I think where this movie probably has more of an issue in that zone is like Alec Guinness playing, you know, Prince Faisal, who is the future king of Syria. Like, they're they're not the same, even though the stories are that when Alec Guinness walked around, people were like, oh, you are Faisal. And, you know, everyone. They do look a lot alike. They, I mean, yeah, they look, I mean, and but I felt like the portrayal here was trying to be the best it could be. I feel like they treated people with respect. Well, I think where this movie really makes it clear that it's not a white savior movie is how hard it goes on the point that, yes, the British are just as bad and that Lawrence himself is just as bad. Right. And then even when he walks through this world and people are treating him like a god, you get the musical score turning kind of discordant and evil. Like the movie is uncomfortable with even his consideration of himself as a savior. I love this scene because this is Lawrence at the most godlike he is. And you basically are making this illusion, almost like walking on water. He's walking on the train car. You're seeing him in these flowing robes. He looks absolutely godlike. And and what is he doing? Like he is losing the thread, right? Like he's, you know, he's bought into his own power. I think it's like, you know, this power and corrupts. I think that that's part of this journey too. And whether you're a large government, a small tribe, uh, you know, or, or just a man, you see how this, I mean, this moment leads into the rape scene because of his bravado. He doesn't even take any precautions. He's losing his army. He doesn't care. He's, he, you know, he, when he gets shot, he's like, of course I didn't die. It doesn't hurt. I'm. He's I'm standing fine. there. I was thinking actually he's standing there 
like Jules is when everybody shoots at him in yeah. Pulp Fiction. He's standing there like, go on. And I, there was like, there's a DNA in that that I really like. I, yeah, I really, I, I mean, it's fascinating. But yeah, like the score is telling us he's not the hero. And it's it's building us up to that moment after the big massacre when we have this reversal. Like at the beginning, Lawrence is telling Sharif, you're the monster. You're the uncivilized one. And now it's Sharif saying, you have gone too far. You are the monster. And then you have the photographer who has made him into this god in this moment. There's even this kind of sense that like maybe he's the figurehead because because people like Anthony Quinn don't want to be photographed. So he is the photographed one. And then you have the photographer almost yelling at him in a way where he sense he regrets what he has done to make this man a god. Jesus wept. Does it surprise you, Mr. Bentley? Surely you know the Arabs are a barbarous people, barbarous and cruel. Who but they? Who but they? Rotten man. Here, let me take your rotten, bloody picture. For the rotten, bloody newspapers. I love that it's Sharif yeah. there saying, like, this is your stereotype of me, but it was the Englishman who did it. And and here is the reporter who built this man, who's now condemning this man. And that's what, again, it's all about these characters, very small, observed performances of of how... We can build somebody up and then knock them down and feel in the right on both sides. I mean, he leaves this movie not a hero. I mean, and again, going back to that Scorsese clip, he leaves, you know, longing, I think, for the simplicity of what we see in the first act, which is being lost in the desert, a place that he feels is clean and exciting. And what he kind of did was got himself back into the corporate or the, you know, the idea of what the British... I mean, that's what the end of the movie is. It's like they take over this town and they start to form government, but they, you know, they can't figure out the government. It's like we're getting into bureaucracy. Like, it like it all just devolves. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Like, when they make it to Damascus and you have the scene of the Arab Council, which I think is, like, the, they... This movie does make the Arab Council look completely insane because they're right. trying to just condense it into really fast. Right, and by the so way, the, a lot of people screaming. The Arab Council lasted way after the war. Yeah. I mean, if until like nineteen twenty, right? Yeah, I think like I think a lot of the people of the Arab nations were so offended by this moment of the Arab Council that that's mm -hmm. part of why this movie was banned in most Arab nations right. besides Egypt. Yeah, and it looks Egypt like, loved it because you know Omar Sharif is Egyptian and it's really of elevated him. Their their favorite right. movie style. I mean, but it looks almost like duck soup. Like yeah. it is. It is a. It is comical. It is a legit comical scene. Yeah, like we've gone from this kind of expanse of the desert. Like when you see these tribes in the desert, they make visual sense. You know, there's this clearness, mm. there's this space, and then there they are. They fit in that landscape. And the way they're shot here, it's all these clashing costumes of all these people from all these different tribes. It's the indoors cantina. Indoors where we're not used to seeing them. It's the cantina. And it's crowded and it's chaotic and yeah. it just looks like it doesn't fit. And there's this dark irony that I love in here where these are people who have not needed electricity and they have not needed running water. And now they're falling apart because this town does. And they're asked to do something that they have never needed before. And of course, they can't go from like zero to 700 on being like, oh, yes, this is how wiring works right. because they have in they have learned to live without it. They've never had it. And so, yeah, I can imagine watching this scene and being from an Arab nation and then you watch – it, this this chaos exists and get interrupted by Lawrence with a gun. You know, Lawrence, this man with a gun. Oh 
are neither Harith nor Hawaitat nor any other tribe but Arabs of the Arab Council acting for Prince Faisal. He insulted me. He insulted me. Right. And I mean, insults have been such a big thing in this film back and forth to the scene that you were talking about where Lawrence is forced to execute the man that he saved it is the greater good worth one life, which is the question that I think so many so many philosophy moments come down to. Well, I was going to say, which is why Star Trek II is the superior oh Star God. Trek film, because Kirk and Spock, they have this thing, and you know, Spock knows. Spock knows. Anyway, I don't want to get into all that right now. <laughs> Nicholas Meyer, you're a genius. You're the David Lean of Star Trek. But I wanted to analyze you for a second. Amy. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm not a biopic. No, because you said something about this film in contrast to some of the Vietnam films that we've watched and some of the other, you know, um, war films, you know, like how you like this a little bit more versus those. And I wonder, because I think those films say war is bad, you know, and guess what? The Americans have blood on their hands too. And, you know, uh, not everyone was right. But this movie really does a 360. It shows everything everybody and war is creating certain things and it doesn't have to be just about violence it's like this is a much bigger film it is about hypocrisy it is about the the problems with power it's we don't learn about the vietnamese there we don't see any other side we just see good bad wanting to be better you know it's it's very black and white that's true you don't get the Vietnamese point of view ever really said in something like Apocalypse Now. And it's interesting because I, I compare these films so much in my head, I think just because in both of them, a lot of the story of the film is the story of how hard it was to make the film. Mm-hmm. You know, here it's like the 130 degree weather, the breaking thermometers, the film that was going to melt, like everybody panicking. Peter O'Toole, uh, third degree burn, sprained both of his ankles, tore ligaments in his hip and thigh, sprained his neck, broke his thumb, dislocated his spine, fractured his skull, bitten by a camel, tore <laughs> groin, a camel. Uh, concussed twice, broke his hand, uh, but that was while he was drunk. Uh, and also, you know, was uh, so badly chafed from riding a camel that he he bled. Um, like this is, you know, this is a movie that, you know, seems, camel. Ch- uh, this is a movie that is, you know, impossible. And I think we, lo- again, we know that we love an impossible shoot. Yeah. And I think O'Toole was so comfortable on his camel that he bought foam and put some foam on yes. his camel padding, which meant that the better one started to call him the father of the sponge. I love it. <laughs> I mean, and this is also a movie in its scope. And I think David Lean is, you know, I'm fascinated by David Lean, and I want to kind of go and see more of his filmography. We're going to get to I know that. Um, but I feel like it's also a movie where emotions are high. Like I've heard Omar Sharif on talk shows, like there was never a woman around. We were all these men in the middle of the desert. And you have this producer, Sam Spiegel, you know, so upset about production. He would feign heart attacks. He was so annoyed one time that he hired a Red Cross helicopter to fly him to the desert set, strapped to a gurney to tell David, don't worry about anything. Not the budget, not the schedule, not my health. <laughs> and then it was flown back out. Like it is performative. I yeah. mean, this is, this is, I mean, we talk about like, you know, oh, uh, Copa wanted to be in the jungle playing war, and they wanted to be here playing war, too. I mean, I think that that never goes away. I think that that's part of making these movies. It's true, and I think Spiegel was under a lot of stress, you know, for him personally, because, you know, what he was really worried about was that he is Jewish, and here he is in countries that he is really worried are going to be angry once they find out Mm -hmm. that he's Jewish. And so he would walk around 
pretending that he wasn't Jewish in, in ways where like once when somebody was explaining to him how Ramadan worked, he was like, oh, yes, it's like my Lent. <laughs> you know, that's hilarious. But he, really was, he was just under so much personal strain. And then also, you know, Peter O'Toole, I mean, the story is, and I'm sure I'm not gossiping. Everybody might have, have the sense of him that Peter O'Toole was just a gigantic drunk. Oh, yeah. You know, Peter O'Toole, he was actually born in England, but he always told people he was born in Irish, Ireland, and he always wore yeah. green socks. And I think part of it was like to be like, that's why I drink so much. I'm allowed. But he was drunk all the time. And he was not a good drunk. He was a throw champagne in your face. Let's go out and find the he, whorehouses kind of drunk. He broke his hand punching through a caravan. I mean, there was a great line on Letterman. It was like an old Letterman episode where he goes, you know, you come from a, an era where on your off time, you know, when you were bored, you would drink. And he goes, oh, well, also when I was doing things too. <laughs> like, you know, like, I mean, I butchered the quote a little bit, but it's like, but the idea that like, yeah, like he he is a, so like, uh, you know, em- embraces how much of a drunk he yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, there's a story where Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif, when they had a couple of days off, they took a private plane to Beirut in Beirut back then was sort of, I don't know, kind of like the Las Vegas, the most permissive mm-hmm. area of that region. And they got so drunk that they went up to a house full of women and they were like, why wouldn't any of this woman have sex with us? And it was a nunnery. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's amazing. I shouldn't be laughing, but I'm laughing. What are you going to do? But yeah, like Peter O'Toole was crazy. I mean, when somebody oh. thought that he was going to get into a gigantic fight where he was going to end up murdered because of who he was messing with when he was drunk. I mean, I think it was, I think it was Spiegel who was like, well, you know, I'm almost sad he wasn't killed. Oh, that's amazing. Because Al Guinness was like, he's like, he he should have been shot or strangled. I mean, I think he's so fascinating. It is a bummer. I mean, okay, we talked about this when we talked about To Kill the Mockingbird, about mm-hmm. Gregory Peck and about how stalwart his character, his mm-hmm. version is of Atticus Finch. And is it to one note? And we kind of talked about it back and forth. And I do feel like really now fresh eyes on this Peter O'Toole performance, the fact that Gregory Peck beat him for the Best Actor Oscar this year. Mm-hmm. No, right? No, it should have been O'Toole. There is no world in which O'Toole doesn't win the Best Actor Oscar because, again, it's it's sort of my favorite type of performance um, it's so internal, but it's so like you can't take your eyes off of him. He is charming, he is reckless, he, you know, but I think where this movie, and look, it's not getting too dinged. I mean, I like it got nominated for what, like 10 Oscars. I think to kill a mockingbird is simple. It's like, here it is, good man standing up for what's right in an era where that story is important. Here's a man going, I'm conflicted. Sometimes I'm good, sometimes I'm bad. War is a hard thing. It is for the greater good, but it also causes a lot of strife. This is a a message that I don't think is as relatable. And I think when you walk away from this movie, you think of the image of Peter O'Toole. I don't think you think about the performance of Peter O'Toole, but watching it, there's nothing that is the movie. The movie, yes, the images are amazing, but that is why that's, keeping you there. Yeah, I mean, I think the images in this movie are what we talk about when we talk about this mm-hmm. movie. We talk about the score. The score is amazing. Yes. You know, there's so many score moments I want to shout out because I'm just shout them out. Like, I love it when when the man falls off the camel and goes back to rescue him. I think it's Gassim. And the drums that you hear every mm. time they show the sun, they're so ominous. I love it when you hear the score come in for the first time during that beautiful clip where where you see him light the match and then you just cut to the giant yeah. red sun and you're outdoors in the desert for the first time. I mean, time. that's so Raiders. It's it's almost comical. I was like, oh, this is 
like Spielberg just ripped this off. Oh, he straight up just ripped it off. I mean, yeah. I mean, he ripped off Envy Coats. You know, I, this is really a huge moment in editing. I mean, oh, to have God, a yeah. cut like that that was jarring and in your face, that was major for a big, you know, Western production because we weren't really doing that except in the small French New Wave films. And Envy Coates, she was like, Dave Lillian, come with me. Let's go watch some of these French New Wave films and see what people are doing with editing. We don't have to just do this as a dissolve. You and know, the plan was they would just dissolve to it. And when they put it together in the editing room, meaning to add a dissolve, she was just like, you know what, this is what we have to do. We have to do something this bold. And she changed editing forever in that scene. So I think we talk about this movie in the technicals when we're not really talking about it so much about heroism. And that's really right. what I find almost just well, as compelling right now. I, uh, I want to just talk a little bit more about the technicals too. So you know, we talked about the searchers on this uh, show and how beautiful the visuals are there. Now, this the searchers comes out before Lawrence of Arabia. Do you think that Lean was inspired by that? Because there are some similarities in the way that you know, a Monument Valley, right? That was the searchers. Like there are, I mean, I guess desert is desert, but there, but there are, I, I wondered, you know, we talk about how this film has affected films after it, but I wonder if it was affected by films before it too. I mean, I think so a thousand percent. Like you have that really amazing introduction shot of Ethan in the searchers, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're watching him come where the mm -hmm. woman who's yeah. always sort of loved him is watching him ride up from the desert from far away. I mean, that's 100% Omar Sharif's entrance, right? Yeah. The slow buildup of somebody who's going to be major. Somebody that you're going to feel a million ways about, yeah. the way that you feel about Ethan. It is It is in the lexicon of film. I mean, that's why this film was number five and now number seven on the list. It's a top 10 AFI film. That's, a, that's very high. Um, but... Impre I mean, it's an impressive looking film. And I think that maybe sometimes people are remembering it just from the pure visual aspect of it. Yeah. And I was glad to get in and get to do some research about just the pure visual aspect because it answered one of the questions I've always had whenever I see a movie about people riding through the desert, mm -hmm. which is, oh, my God, did they do this in one take or how on earth did they yes. get the sand perfect? I, I'm I, fascinated by the sand. I pulled right? a clip about this. I'm so curious. About you your, did? Yes. Ooh, because I want to hear it because I just read oh. it a little bit, but I'll hear somebody talk about it. Well, this is great. So Steven Spielberg, obviously very influenced by David Lean, um, got to become friends with David Lean. And uh, take it away, Steven. David Lean was inspired, and he inspired a whole generation of filmmakers, and some of us inspire other young film students who want to become professional directors and writers and actors and actresses and that's all really important and I really understood that from him and we sort of talked that same language but then we got down to talking about things like well how'd you get the footprints out of the sand for take two because I saw those camels were walking for three quarters of a mile and then what about take two and then he would explain to me why the film took something like 285 actual shooting days to finish and you understood why sometimes he was only getting one shot a day one shot a day just because they just needed to clear the footprints. Yeah, they would have 300 men on standby with palm fronds, 300 local men, and they would go up and they'd run on, they'd dust everything, and then they'd take a fan and blow ripples back into it. I mean, it's wow. insane. I was reading Woods. This reporter was there on the set, and she said they're already, they're about to do a giant take. It was like a mile shot of just all of these people, all of these tents, and then a white cup blew into the frame, and they're like, oh, hold on. They had to go get the cup and then reset everybody. I mean, can you imagine? Wow. Like, I'm not usually that impressed by these stories of like, oh, so hard. You have to love my film because it was so hard. But in this case, I kind of am. To think about a day where you only get one shot, if you know anything about making film, I mean, that is bananas. That is, Because this is not a film that, I mean, there are plenty of action sequences, but there are just plenty of just, you know, desert sequences that are very slow. It's like, my God, 
you would go crazy. I, I would just imagine that, you know, how do you keep yourself interested in, in, in the material when you, first of all, you only have one shot to get it. You can't really refine a performance. I mean, you, I'm sure in the dialogue since there, but it's a, it's a lot of stress, like just to get everything in one shot. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to hate this film if you're making it, right? Yeah. I mean, somebody asked Peter O'Toole about it later on in his life, and this was sort of how he said about being in the desert. In Jordan mm-hmm. and Saudi Arabia, uh, I was, we had a cozy three months in Seville. Mm-hmm. Then we had three months in the Spanish desert, and then another three months in the Sahara. You adjust easily to the desert? Oh, no, I loathe it. No, no one adjusts to the desert. Only lunatics and God. God was born in the desert. I mean, he stole a line from the movie, but I love that. <laughs> um, I, mean, I loathe the desert. I mean, I have to admit, you know, earlier this year, I was in um, Jordan and I was like in Azraq, which is mm-hmm. where T.E. Lawrence's winter hideout was. You know, mm-hmm. there's sort of the sense of Azraq, even though they didn't shoot in actual Azraq. And then we drove from Azraq down to Petra, where they couldn't shoot at Petra because Petra, to get into Petra, right. that's actually in, um, I think, the last of the Indiana Jones yes. as they go to Petra. Yes. To get into Petra, you have to do this tiny, narrow walkway. It's impossible. And there are a bunch of camels like running up and down and almost running you over the whole time. But we did that drive from A to B, and it is just this beautiful vastness. It is just empty. And every so often... You would pass by a light pole that was made up to look like a palm tree with a bunch of green lights on it. And you'd pass by one gas station and then just nothing. Well, I mean, and the idea of being there and shooting this movie with all of these people and all of these extras and having to get all of this food. 150 miles away was the nearest well when they were shooting in Jordan. 150 miles away for water. Maybe that's part of it. The what to get this, it is an impossible task. So you are having to be celebrated for the endurance. No one has done it because it's not easy to do. But if you were that crazy to mount something and have it come out in a way that is at all professional, and this, you know, of course, is more than uh, professional. It's it's, it's exquisite. Um, it has to be applauded. It's like you. It's like the guy who jumped uh, from that space satellite. Did you know that Red Bull jump? It's like you gotta, you gotta <laughs> give it up. Like I, like is is he like the world's best athlete? I, I don't know, but I gotta say, like, yeah, that's fucking awesome. No one's ever <laughs> jumped from outer space back into Earth. You know, like. I mean, I think that's why I find the stories of Peter O'Toole just snapping on set so fun and so interesting. You know, I mean, there's this story that you know, when they were shooting the scene where um, where Allenby is grilling him on what happened mm-hmm. when he was with the Turks, where O'Toole just kind of snapped and he screamed, I was fucked by some Turks. Uh, <laughs> and they're just like, OK, way- take again, take again. And then finally, like when they were finishing the movie, you know, the very last shot they did is that one literally where he's leaving the desert mm-hmm. and he's in the car and he's driving by. It was so hot that day that he wasn't even wearing pants. So he's just sitting there with his uniform wow. top on and then his feet are in a bucket of ice. And then they finally finish and he goes to, I think, some giant hotel lobby and he swings open the door and he just yells, the fucking picture is finished. <laughs> well, I think, look, I have sympathy. I mean, this man was brutalized during this. And you talk about, you know, go, we're making a lot of connections to Apocalypse Now, like Martin Sheen also brutalized. You know, it's like when you're the forefront of a film, like he's not, you know, the, you can probably count the minutes on your hand 
of the time he's off screen, it's negligible. It, you know, it's it's not that long at exactly. all. Exactly. And David Lean is being like, look right into the sun. Yeah. What? what? Like, yeah. Look right into the sun. <laughs> I mean, you know, Tool's a guy who I think wasn't even born that healthy as a kid. He was always sick when he was little. And he even grew up with like a bossy kind of strange dad. There's a story that one day his dad came home uh, during Christmas and he didn't have really any presents for the family because they were pretty poor. Right. And so his dad walked in the door with this really mangy Christmas tree and then walked up to the second store and then shot a gun and then said, Santa's dead. <laughs> so, you know, O'Toole, O'Toole can drink a lot, I guess, is what I'm saying. O'Toole, it's fine. <laughs> um, listen to David Lean uh, talk about the, uh, the legacy of his own career. You never make, well, at least in my case, I've never made a movie that I can sit back and say, well, that's it. I'm delighted. There are bits of movies that I like, you know? I love that idea. This is a man who has, you know, one of the quintessential American films, two on this list. He's made, you know, legendary films. And like, again, I only watched Dr. Zhivago on the floor of my grandmother's house and hated it. But these are films that I'm familiar with and they're big. And I just love him being like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not really, I like moments. <laughs> moments are good. Well, we're going to talk about the moments we like. I think one of my favorite moments is when you're in Anthony Quinn's tent for the first yeah. time. And by the way, I, I, I don't know if you know this about me. I love Anthony Quinn, like, deeply. Because one of my dad's favorite movies growing up was Orbit the Greek. So I got yeah. very indoctrinated into the world of Anthony Quinn. And um, they serve the men this gigantic plate of pita and grilled chicken. That plate is insane. I mean, that plate is like I'm, I'm stretching my arms out as wide as I think it can be. Right. And I'm still not even as big as that plate of pita and chicken, which is to me just – absolute a beautiful monument <laughs> and it is actually kind of what the real man what the real um ada abu was like like he was known for being super generous and for giving away everything he ever had and always being on the cusp of being broke because he couldn't help giving things away and like the people who knew him took a little bit of offense to anthony quinn's portrayal here oh, interesting. as a guy who only did things for money because apparently the real the real man was so committed to the idea of arab independence that when he found out his false teeth were made in turkey he broke them and smashed them out of his own face Ooh. But what's striking is that nose that Anthony Quinn puts on here is pretty much exactly right. I was like, that nose is insane. I'm kind of offended by that nose. And then I looked at the pictures and I was like, it's the nose. Also, by the way, one of my favorite true fun facts from this movie is that while they were making it, they had this young British switchboard operator. Her name was Tony. Tony uh, Gardner. Yeah. And she was, you know, working the phones and blah, blah, blah. And she was working the phones by where King Hussein of Jordan, you know, when they were shooting the film in Jordan, would fly his planes and land. And they met and he married her. So he married the switchboard operator from the film, this British girl. Uh, they changed her name to what in Arabic means, I think, like the whim or the desire of, of of Hussein. And then they said they could never get a good phone call again because she was the only one who knew how to work the phones. <laughs> you like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. 
You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. Oh, we can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salud to the perfect day. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What I thought was so interesting is this movie is so massive and obviously they couldn't shoot at night because I can only imagine what it would have been like to light by moonlight, you know, already impossible. But did you notice that, you know, this movie has an effect on it that I think a lot of films of this day and age have, which is like they shoot day for night and they kind of put a filter over the lens. So it it gives night a very kind of eerie look. It's like a... um it almost looks like sunset all the time or something like that. It's because it, they just have a, uh, a lens over the camera. I mean, I like the idea that it looks alien mm-hmm. in a way because what I thought when I was watching Lawrence of Arabia this time was how much the alien look of Lawrence of Arabia is then transplanted into Star Wars, right? Mm. Doesn't this movie just seem like Star Wars? Well, of course. I mean, look, it's it's these are the people who were affected by this film. I mean, that's Spielberg, Lucas, Scorsese. They're all watching this as kids going like, I want to make that. Yeah, I mean, the scene that I was most thinking of is like really early on when Luke is at Tatooine mm-hmm. and he's running around with goggles and he's spying mm-hmm. and he's looking at what he calls the sand people. Oh, yeah. There are two banthas down there, but I don't see any... Wait a second... They're sand people, all right? I can see one of them now. And there's the echoing through the caverns. Yeah, the crazy echoing effect, and then a mysterious man with a hood who is Alec Guinness. I mean, how mm, perfect is wow. that? Wow, wow. It, it's amazing to see all the effects and, and kind of the connections uh, that this film has on on modern film, like I I felt like I kept on seeing all these little details, like oh that's from that, that's from that. Yeah, exactly. And you know Prometheus. I'm sure that there are people out there who love Prometheus. So much of what Michael Fassbender is doing in Prometheus is just him ripping off Peter O'Toole and Lawrence of Arabia. Really? A hundred percent. I mean, actually, in the movie, you have David, the robot character, watching Lawrence of Arabia and then combing his hair to look like it and quoting Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, here, listen to this. Oh. It damn well hurts. Certainly it hurts. Well, what's the trick then? The trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. The trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. Which makes so much sense because David in this movie is a man on his own destructive mission. Yes, and also trying to find a father figure too or you know yeah. it, like it's a very interesting that's I mean, one of the million threads in Prometheus that I never bothered yes. to care about <laughs> sorry <laughs> oh gosh, sorry I just said that <laughs> uh, no I mean Amy a big deal was given and I, we talked about height on the show in the past a big deal was given to the fact that the Peter O'Toole was taller than the real uh, Lawrence and almost like a foot taller right? yeah and the real much Lawrence better looking tiny. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> he was so much better looking. Oh my god, did I, did you see this quote from Noel Coward? Yes. Yeah. Do you want to do it? Yeah, he said, if he was any prettier, they'd have to call it Florence of Arabia. Oh, which, I, oh, I wasn't even thinking of that quote. Oh, you, I was thinking of the quote where Noel Coward was like, if he was that pretty, there would have been a much longer line of Turkish men wanting to bone him. By the way, how many quotes does Noel Coward have about this movie? Like, what was he just having? Oh, <laughs> like somebody got him on a red carpet. Um, hey, it, bada bing, bada boom. I just think that that, like, that kind of controversy is oddly stupid. I know that you you know, feel like the Jack Reacher of it all. Like we needed a taller man for that, a Michael Shannon man. Again, going back to what I said, like, is this the perception of how we view T.E. Lawrence? Like, is the, you know, this godlike, gorgeous man. That's what you want to see. Like, like the way he is on the cover of the paper, he he has to look historic. This is the man that newsreels were made of. You know, that it's not like, you know, it's not like uh, Wallace Shawn saved the day in uh, in World War II. And that's no dig on Wallace Shawn. It's but just wouldn't saying, it kind of be interesting to see a Wallace Shawn type save the day? Because then you're getting into Napoleon psychological territory. Well, look, Amy, I, all the time I'm like, come on, cast me more as uh, Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, I'm trying to get those parts. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, like, I think that some movies are trying to do more of a, you know, a realistic version of this, of who these people were. But I think this movie is, deals a lot with how we perceive what is heroic. By the way, there's some interesting casting that we didn't talk about that I think uh, I wanted to get your take on, especially because we're coming off of uh, doing Philadelphia Story a couple weeks ago, um, that, you know, Cary Grant was up for a part in this film. Um, and he turned it down. A lot of people turned down roles in this film. And I think, you know, after hearing the stories of production, they did the right thing. Um, but they wanted um, Cary Grant or Olivier to play Allenby. Um, huh. Yeah, and that was actually played by Jack Hawkins. But it would have been interesting to see Cary Grant in that role, I think. I, in a way, I think it might have thrown it off because the, the sort of the point is that people like Allenby aren't going to be remembered. remembered and yeah. even Allenby knows it. And if you have somebody memorable in it. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was also like a whole list of European actors that they wanted for the Omar Sharif part that just kept giving up because they didn't want to wear the brown contacts or something after that. And finally, they just decided on Sharif himself, who was terrific in this movie. I mean, Omar Sharif is fantastic. The only real knowledge I have of Omar Sharif, and this is sad to say, is um, in Top Secret, one of the best uh, movies ever made, Val Kilmer, a spy movie parody. <laughs> I remember he gets uh, he <laughs> gets crushed in a car, and he walks around in a crushed car scene. It's a classic, uh, classic scene. But anyway... Did you know, Paul, that Lawrence of Arabia had a sequel? I did know this, <laughs> and I'm hoping – well, please explain it to everybody. I hope you've pulled a clip. <laughs> I did pull one clip. Um, there was a movie that came out in 1990. And the reason why it came out in 1990 is because in 1989 is when they did the big, beautiful restoration. So mm -hmm. Lawrence was very much on people's heads. Then they made a movie called Lawrence After Arabia, A Dangerous Man – and it stars Rafe Fiennes as Lawrence of Arabia. And it picks up not long after the movie ends. And it does, I think, kind of the early 90s and also uh -huh. very much today thing of making a sequel that just explains the character by like a reboot, really, even. That just goes deep into like saying the things that the movie didn't have to say out oh, loud. Oh, boy, boy. I mean, I picked a scene actually where um, there's a lot in this movie that's like kind of sexualized. And do you mm -hmm. see Ray Fiennes in the bath talking about the scars he got at the hands of the Turks? Um, but I pulled this scene where um, it's just sort of typical, I think, of like the kind of casual eroticism that this mm -hmm. film is going for. The first time I saw you was when you came to my tent at Rafa. 
You stood there with the blackness of the desert behind you, and I thought you were somebody's pleasure boy. You sat down on my bed and said, I am Lawrence. And I said, boy or girl? <laughs> Would you mind if I borrowed your bath? They haven't given me one. Oh, and there you go. And then the man oh, yeah, looks yeah, at yeah. his scars in the bath. The only thing I want to see in that is Alexander Siddig as Prince Faisal because I like him from Deep Space Nine. He's always uh, good, doing good, <laughs> doing good work over there. Um, Amy, I will, I will say this. Um, you know, we know that this movie obviously was recognized, right? Ten uh, nominations at the Academy Awards. They would have gotten 11, but guess what they didn't do? They forgot to put up Phyllis Dalton for a nomination. She's the costume designer. Wow, that's a gimme How do you the forget that? that? Gimme costume. How do you oh, forget? Right. I mean, that is amazing. They forgot? They forgot? They had a lot going on. Uh, anyway, uh, she <laughs> doesn't get put up for nomination. She did actually really interesting stuff, too. Like, she made um, Lawrence's uh, military costume too small for him to show, like, he was uncomfortable in that costume. Oh, I she love really that. love the little details like that. But what did people think, Amy? I mean, was it beloved or was it um, received, uh, you know? not unanimously as a great film. Most people totally, 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 totally loved it. But a few prominent people didn't, and they went very hard on them. Mm. And the person that I pulled is, person we've heard before, Bosley Crowther of the New York uh, Times. Yes. This is what Bosley wrote. Like the desert itself, in which most of the action in Lawrence of Arabia takes place, this much-heralded film about the famous British soldier-adventurer which opened last night at the Criterion is vast, awe-inspiring, beautiful with ever-changing hues, exhausting and barren of humanity. It is such a laboriously large conveyance of eye-filling outdoor spectacle, such as brilliant displays of endless desert and camels and Arabs and sheiks and skirmishes with Turks and explosions and arguments with British military men, that the possibly human, moving T.E. Lawrence is lost in it. We know little more about the strange man when it is over than we did when it began, and why Lawrence had a disposition to join the Arab tribes and what caused his streak of sadism is barely hinted at in the film. The faults seem to lie, first... In the conception of telling the story of this self-tortured man against a background of action that has the characteristic of a mammoth Western film, he's calling out the searcher's connection, I think, right there. And he says the fault is also in the lengthy but surprisingly lusterless dialogue of Robert Bolt's overwritten screenplay. Oh, wow. Seldom has so little been said in so many words. And then he says that the film reduces a, le a legendary figure to conventional movie hero size, admits magnificent and exotic scenery, but a conventional lot of action film cliches. It is, in the last analysis, just a huge, thundering camel opera that tends to run down rather badly as it rolls on into its third hour and gets involved with soul and disillusion and political deceit. A camel opera. Wow, a camel opera. The only thing I could do about the phrase camel opera is delight you with this camel rap. Oh, man. On the sizzling sands that ride like Japan I'm crossing the Sahara and my caravan I'm the legendary dromedary 400 pounds on my back in the desert I carry nothing to drink until the next oasis water is precious so we never wasted Alright, Amy if you're gonna pull that kind of <laughs> bullshit on me uh, you didn't want to learn about adaptation? Oh. About the dromedary home. No, no you know, it's all right. You no, I'm to. done. I'm done with it all. <laughs> um, what do you What do you think? Do you, does, it, does it belong on the list? I mean, does it belong uh, yeah. up so high on the list? Seven. Ooh. Number seven. And, and just to put that in context with you, I'll say this. Citizen Kane, Godfather, Casablanca, Raging Bull, 
Singing in the Rain, Gone with the Wind, Lawrence of Arabia, Schindler's List, Vertigo, and The Wizard of Oz. That is the top 10. Not our top 10, but that is the current top 10. I mean, what the bulk of those have is they have that epic feel, right? Mm -hmm. I would say over half of them are epics in a sense. Some historical. Some historical, some not. And I... I think I might have to say yes on this. And, you know, I think I would say yes, not just because of the beauty and the vistas and the heroism mm-hmm. and everything we're talking about, but also I do want to keep shouting out, like, the modern part of how this film was created. You know, the editing styles of this launched. I think that there is something in this film that if we're judging these and we're looking for how did this film get reiterated and spat up and dissolved and chewed out through the rest of culture, that's just all here. You know, and I think that this is a film that – I can totally get watching it and being completely lost because it's not going to explain that much to you. I was totally lost the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. I, I think only in reading more do I feel like I can start to try to explain what it's, what's even happening. Right. So I can see how that could be taken as a strike against it. I see this as a film that gets stickier and sticks to you the more that you live with it. And for that, I, I, I want to see this film on the list and I want it to get to stick to more people. I agree. I believe it belongs in the top 10 I think, you know, this film has this homework element to it. That if you look at that top 10, no other film has that. I would argue that that top 10, this is the one that you would kick off if you were asking a normal person, which one, if you have to kick off one, what would it be? It it seems to be like, like that kind of a movie. And, And it is a shame I also think it's a movie that really benefits having not seen it on a big screen, but seeing it in that way, you know, you have to, it does demand attention. I think you have to get lost in it. And I think your, you know, feeling of being a little bit lost the first time you saw it is okay because when you're in a theater, you are swept up. You can't deny the effect that this movie had on, on cinema and, and, and the performance is great. I, don't find it to be one of my favorite movies that we've done on the list, but I find it to be one of the most important movies that we've done on the list. And that's an interesting distinction. I've loved this conversation. I've loved getting into it. Um, maybe if I see it again, and maybe if I go see one of these Fathom events, again, we're not affiliated with Fathom, uh, I might even see it again in a different way. I just, it's it's a, it's a one I'm really wrestling with. Yeah, I think it's kind of like, you know how, and I'll, I'll bring it up this time, how Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the second time you watch it, yeah. feels so much faster. Yeah. And you, you understand it and you like it so much better. Yeah. It's, That's kind of how I feel here. And it's interesting, like, you know, they've done so many cuts where they made it a lot shorter. And Envy Coates said that one of the cuts that was one of their shorter ones, she said, when you cut it that short, it feels like a longer film because you don't live with it and you don't care right. about the characters as much. And kind of just settling in and knowing what it is and being able to appreciate it more and more and more. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right, so Amy, we've talked a lot. It's been a, a big episode for a very big movie, but there's one question that hangs above our heads. Is there a Simpsons? But of course there is a Simpsons for this one. There's a lot of visual Simpsons puns. Of course, a lot I of like da 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 A lot of times the music kicks up. Kicks up. Uh, the one that I decided to pull is from an episode called The Greatest Story Ever Dowed. And in this story, Homer and Flanders go to the Holy Land. Homer, of course, really fucks up being there and has no respect for anything. Um, And then he thinks that he's been such a screw-up that Flanders has escaped into the desert and he needs to go find and rescue him, which he does on a camel that he calls a sand horse, car of the desert. Flanders! Stupid Flanders! 
Oh, there's sand in my shoe! Thirsty! I am so thirsty! And hungry and horny! But mostly just thirsty! <laughs> that is great. <laughs> I think that's just such a tribute to the score that you can have just Homer singing to a tune, and that is your Lawrence of Arabia, the music more than anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, Amy, next week's movie is On the Waterfront, a Marlon Brando classic. And you know, a lot of the times we do a kind of a joke with our Collins. We we say like, you know, do it in a funny voice or let's see what you think this plot is about. I have an idea because On the Waterfront is a very emotional movie. It's a very realistic film. I want to know where people thought that they could have been a contender in their own lives. Whoa, where, real where is emotion? Yeah, real emotion. Where is something that they wish they would have held on to that they let go? This is, you know, we all have these regrets in our lives. And what is that person? Is it a love? Is it a job? Is it a, is it a career? It could be anything at all. Um, you know, you don't have to make it funny, but let's see where you could have been a contender. What's something that you wish you didn't give up on. What do you think? Is that too dark for us to do? Or I mean, I'll, I'll start. You know, yeah. I really wanted to be a photographer. Like, oh, really? I thought I was going to be a photographer all through like middle and high school. And I had a dark room in my garage. I applied to art school, but I didn't get enough of a scholarship to go. And I was very serious about it. I had my dad's camera. I was always printing pictures. I lived in the dark room in, in high school. And wow. so, yeah, I could have been a photographer. I, oh, I love that you could have been a photographer. For me... I think that the one regret that I have, uh, and I definitely have a few, but the one big one was not traveling enough when I was younger and it didn't make a difference. Like I didn't need to have a lot of money. I felt like it felt so unattainable to me. And I was like, no, no, I have to be here. I have to be, you know, uh, in the mix. And it's something that always uh, this kind of, uh, you know, I know I can do it now, but it's different. Things are different. Times it's have changed. It's not hostels. You're not going to a hostel yeah. and a bed for 10 bucks a night and not caring and like exactly. getting a loaf of bread with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And so there is a definitely regret that I didn't in the time of my life where I was most free to travel. I didn't take on that, that, uh, that adventure. So that, that's my, could have been a, I could have been a traveler. Um, well, let's hear your uh, you could have beens. Give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And tell us what you could have been. All right, Amy, the movie On the Waterfront. Next week, we will be talking all about it. that it's the call of the crave and when the crave calls you know what to do try the five dollar bacon bundle because the only thing better than a white castle slider is a white castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon so pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider 1921 bacon cheese slider or chicken bacon ranch slider and also get a small fry for just five dollars with the five dollar bacon bundle white castle follow your crave The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.